Hello and welcome to the 10th Geopolitical Economy Hour, uh, the fortnightly show in which we discuss the political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. And as last time, we have uh, once again with us today, Professor Mick Dunford, Professor Emeritus at Sussex University and visiting scholar at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Mick is based in Beijing and his work focuses on world development especially Eurasia and China. And as you know from the last episode, Mick is here to, dis uh, help, to help us discuss the political and geopolitical economy of the conflict over Ukraine. Last time we discussed uh, the, uh, these, uh, the political and geopolitical economy of the conflict vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, Russia, and Europe. And this, in this episode, we would like to discuss uh, the, the same thing, but in relation to the United States, China, and the rest of the world. So I'll maybe just start us off on the US by uh, essentially pointing out that, you know, when people, you know, do take a critical view of what's going on and look at the economic aspects of the war, the main thing they focus on is the arms industry and the profits being made by the arms industry. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that um, American arms manufacturers, the military industrial complex uh, in the United States is absolutely jubilant over this war. They are making profits hand over fist. Uh, not only uh, are they, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 not only is the United States, not only are, uh, you know, arms orders going to increase as a direct result of the conflict uh, 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 with the United States supplying arms to Ukraine and then seeking to replenish its stock of arms. So uh, that was already happening. And in the last U.S. budget, as you saw, the uh, military, uh, the, 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 the military budget was uh, massively increased because it in addition to the conflict over Ukraine, it is generally uh, on, uh, believed or it was the, the grounds were given that, in fact, we can now expect ever greater conflict, ever greater uh, security uncertainty, and therefore more money needs to be spent on arms. So there's absolutely no doubt that this is what's going on. But... Um, and, and there's also absolutely no doubt that the sort of industries that we were talking about in the last episode, industries that rely on the enforcement of intellectual property rights, etc., are also happy about the conflict over Ukraine because it's really about imposing uh, Western and U.S. imperialism on the rest of the world. Um, uh, which includes, of course, the enforcement of intellectual property rights. So, so they are happy. But it is also very <clears throat> clear that there are sections of U.S. business that are not particularly happy about the conflict, that relied on um, uh, on uh, 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 trade, both with, certainly with uh, uh, China, uh, but also with Russia. Uh, and they are uh, they 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 look at the prospect of breaking these relations with increasing apprehension. So there are divisions within the United States as well. Well, we ended the last episode by talking about how neoliberalism is basically a rentier economy. And the point that you just raised, Radhika, is if uh, the US is uh, a neoliberal uh, rentier economy, and if Europe is following the US lead, how on earth can the uh, West uh, expect to keep pace with the uh, uh, Eurasia and uh, the global majority that is now trying to uh, industrialize and raise its own living standards and, in fact, is forced to industrialize and raise its own living standards by the U.S. sanctioning of their uh, economy, which is forcing them to go it alone. Well, a lot of pacifists and, and, and uh, opponents of uh, uh, the Ukraine war in the United States, like uh, Media Bill, uh, Benjamin, have said that, well, there's really nothing to worry about uh, China. We don't have to be an enemy of China uh, because uh, uh, other countries are bound to grow. And of course, uh, the United States will lose its uh, relative position as other countries begin to grow also. And uh, we can have a happily growing world economy together uh, and American absolute uh, power and absolute economic strength is, uh, can continue to increase. We don't need war. Well, uh, I think, uh, our, uh, Radhika, you're in our position is, yes, they do need war. Absolutely. Uh, because the United States is, is declining in absolute terms because what it costs it calls GDP is largely financial services. Uh, as we've said before in this show, 
when uh, uh, banks increase their late fees to credit card uh, holders, and late fees are now over a trillion dollars, uh, more than uh, credit card companies get in interest, all that is added to GDP. Uh, when uh, uh, American real estate prices have been going up in the last uh, few months of the year, uh, the homeowners imputed value of their homes, if they were to rent their homes to themselves, has been going up, increasing GDP. That's 7% of GDP. So uh, what we call uh, GDP here is really uh, a, a rentier economy that is polarizing between uh, the, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector and the rest of the economy. Well, the fact is that uh, we're uh, the, the U.S. actually cannot uh, catch up uh, with uh, the productivity that uh, uh, makes uh, charts shown uh, with uh, uh, China uh, and Russia, uh, because we've reached the limit to the growth. And the limit to the U.S. growth right now is, is not yet environmental, it's not yet global warming. Uh, when there is a hurricane damage, uh, that's all that rebuilding is considered a, a, a increase in GDP. Uh, it's not a, a, a environmental pollution. It's debt pollution. It's the fact that the economy is so highly indebted that uh, the wage earners cannot afford to increase their consumption as long as they've had to uh, increase uh, their mortgage debt, their credit card debt, and their, yeah. their auto debt. Uh, the, the U.S. has reached uh, the limit of its ability to grow without uh, essentially uh, doing a uh, mixed economy and a, a write-down, and somehow you've got to get uh, free the economy from the rentier sector, from uh, the savers, that uh, their savings are the debts of the 99%. Uh, and uh, you have the U.S. and NATO increase in military spending, uh, forcing cutbacks in social programs uh, in order to get uh, uh, the balanced budget that uh, the Republicans are advocating and that uh, President Biden has long advocated. Uh, so uh, what you're having is the U.S. that simply is not growing, and the only way that it uh, can somehow uh, survive by letting the 1% increase its wealth at the rate at which it's accustomed to is uh, what uh, you mentioned, Radhika, the intellectual property. By monopolizing information technology, by monopolizing pharmaceuticals, by monopolizing technologies and weapon, uh, military industrial weapon and charging huge economic rents far in excess of uh, the value, the cost of production to uh, get uh, a free lunch. Uh, the only way that the United States can grow is by increasing the free lunch, and that means economic shrinkage for the economy as a whole. That's what really underlies uh, the splitting of the world that we're seeing that is just beginning with the Ukraine uh, fighting. Okay, I mean, you know, Radhika, mentioned the important point that uh, the military-industrial complex accounts for a significant share of the uh, U.S. economy and emphasized the way it generates profits for uh, U.S. capital. But it's also quite important to note that um, the products right, of the military-industrial complex do not enter you know, into subsequent accumulation in the way in which other capital goods do, and nor do they enter into workers' consumption. So in a sense, you know, there's a, a, a way in which you know, a vast military-industrial complex is devoting a huge volume of resources to activities that do not contribute significantly to human welfare. The point I want to make, however, is that um, th this U.S. global role, you know, it requires a huge volume of resources and the US I mean the US essentially spends much more than it earns much much more than it earns can you show the uh, slide please Paul now this is this is a slide that just depicts the balance of payments of the five eyes, so the United States, but also Great Britain, you know, uh, figure prominently in shaping these uh, numbers. And, and what's very, very striking, you know, first of all, is that uh, these countries have very substantial trade deficits in real commodities. So they are, they are very dependent upon real goods manufactured in other parts of the world a sustained, you know, large trade deficit. At present, you know, they generally have surpluses in services, 
you know, because in part of the role of the uh, US dollar and of uh, other European currencies in the international financial system and the way in which insurance and all sorts of other activities are connected, you know, with, with that role. But of course, they're roles that depend on the continuing role of the dollar in the international system. But really, you know, to offset, you know, this gap, you know, between what these countries can sell abroad by way of goods and services and their own imports of goods and services, they require on a, lar a large net inflow of financial resources. And I mean, these, these financial resources derive from a number of different sources. They derive in part from the fact, you know, that um, the United States produces dollars and other countries have to hold dollars, you know, in order to finance their international trade activity. So they do not use these dollars in order to purchase goods in return from the United States, for example. They also arise because surplus countries use their surpluses to purchase U.S. Treasury bills at very low rates of interest. So that provides the U.S. with an debt privilege that no other country in the world possesses. And extraordinarily, a few days ago, Alan Greenspan said, the U.S. can always pay any debt it has because we can always print money. So U.S. also imposes or seeks to impose a kind of opening up of markets, privatization, so that it can use dollars to acquire assets throughout the world to generate income streams that can offset its trade deficit. So in a sense, you know, it benefits enormously from a post-Bretton Woods system, which effectively, you know, effectively allows the United States to behave as if it has a credit card with no repayment date and no limit on what it spends. But, you know, it is a world which is changing. And I think it's a change that poses an enormous challenge, an enormous challenge for the United States. Okay. Um, right. So, so I uh, first of all uh, make uh, this is absolutely critical, and of course, as you uh, likely know, um, uh, uh, these privileges that you have rightly pointed to, which the U.S. has hitherto enjoyed, are also in the danger of in danger of disappearing with the process of de-dollarization. Something that Michael and I have explored in great detail over four programs. But uh, this is an absolutely critical point that that needs to be made. Is that in the context of the war? I mean, this is the thing. One of the ironies of this war, which I noted many uh, right almost at the beginning, is that when the only means you have to uh, to achieve such a certain goal in the US case you know to keep its position in the world to keep the dollar the world's money etc when the only means you have to achieve these goals are the very means that are actually going to undermine the achievement of these goals you have a serious problem and that's the situation that the united states is in so uh, absolutely i completely agree with that um and I should also add, of course, that this debt ceiling drama, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really quite interesting and uh, we don't know how it will be resolved. Uh, but two things about it that I think worth noting. Number one, the very fact that this drama is occurring at all underlines the deep political divisions in the United States, which uh, uh, have which are the result exactly of following the policies that the U.S. has followed, the neoliberal policies, the financialization policies that it has followed over the last many decades. And this has resulted in a level of political dysfunction, which we are witness to today. That's the first point. And in a certain sense, you know, uh, this political division may become economically quite meaningful at some point. Uh, secondly, I'd like to say that uh, no matter how this debt ceiling drama is resolved, the Alan Greenspan's uh, uh, idea that somehow the United States can continue to issue debt until kingdom come is completely wrong. Um, the fact of the matter is that the treasury market, the market for treasuries is already in trouble. The treasury market is not as liquid as it used to be. That is to say that the treasuries being issued by the United States government in order to finance its debt do not find as many willing buyers as mm -hmm. in the past, which is why the Federal Reserve 
Reserve has to keep buying uh, uh, treasuries at a great rate of knots. Uh, and that is why its uh, uh, balance sheet has swelled to the extent that it has. Uh, and if the United States does, you know, one of the ideas to break this debt ceiling uh, um, a uh, knot uh, 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 to 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 cut the Gordian knot here has been you know the United States can simply issue a whole lot of money. This is going to lead to a further rapid uh, acceleration of the de-dollarization process, which is in fact then going to land the U.S. into a lot of trouble. The U.S. is already suffering from inflation, which is already a mark of the fact that its imperial power is declining. Because at the end of the day, why is the U.S. suffering from inflation? Because its ability to compel the rest of the world to sell goods and services to it for nothing is declining. And that's why inflation has returned to the United States. So in these ways, I mean, the points you make about financialization are, uh, and, 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 and the kind of economy the U.S. has um, are, are very important. And the solution to that is Michael and I have uh, observed at various occasions in and this because it's such an important truth that it needs underlining the solution to that will have to be a fundamental root and root and branch reform of the financial system to reorient it away from predation and speculation which is what it does today towards productive investment something it has really not done in decades uh, if that so uh, uh, a, a com complete transformation of what we can also call bank industry relations but i want to also uh, shift uh, i want to also add another point which i think is a very important one which is you know I, i'm sure i'm not the only one who said this the united states has never seen a war it doesn't like because the United States has, over the last many decades, in fact, the United States has become as dominant as it has in the world, essentially by exploiting wars between other powers. Um, in the Second World War, in the First World War, the United States economy expanded massively while the economies of other countries were being destroyed essentially because the United States was keeping those wars going by supplying arms material to all sides, basically. And so the United States has uh, always benefited from wars and it is continuing to benefit from wars. And that is partly why the era of American dominance that we have witnessed in the, over the past many decades has been an era of unending wars. We've spent uh, quite a few uh, shows and talking about uh, the U.S. balance of payments and what is uh, America's foreign debt. And this is a topic that's not taught in economics courses or political courses, and it's one of the most confusing topics uh, to most people. Uh, why is how did America run up this foreign debt, and why do other countries keep their uh, savings in the United States? Well, for uh, until the last two years. China, uh, Saudi Arabia, other countries held very strong uh, uh, savings in the United States because, after all, it's an open capital market and because they needed the U.S. dollars in order to pay for the oil that they bought for the copper, uh, the, the, the U.S. dollar was how all of the world's commodity markets worked, from oil to raw materials to manufacturers. Well, <clears throat> one result, uh, the United States has uh, just uh, basically committed suicide for uh, the U.S. dollar standard by grabbing, first of all, Venezuela's uh, gold, saying uh, Venezuela didn't elect the president we want. Uh, we appointed them to please give all of uh, the gold in the uh, Bank of England to Mr. Grito. Uh, and secondly, the uh, grabbing of Russia's uh, uh, foreign exchange in Europe and America, anywhere from $30 billion to $300 billion. So now uh, the U.S. is not a safe country. Uh, but more important, why on earth would anybody hold U.S. dollars to pay for oil if uh, Saudi Arabia now pays for its uh, Russian oil in rubles. And uh, Saudi Arabia now pays for its imports from China uh, with a uh, Chinese uh, uh, RMB. Uh, now that uh, the world trade is uh, 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 multipolarizing, now that countries are uh, paying for their uh, 
trade and investment with each other in their own currencies, there is no need for the dollar. So uh, yes, the United States can print all of the dollars at once, but it can't outproduce the goods and services, which are the whole reason that people hold dollars. And the U.S. debt is so uh, much larger than the amount to pay that the United States is technically insolvent. Uh, the United States as a whole is just like Silicon Valley Bank and the banks that have just gone under. There is no way that the United States can or has any intention of paying the foreign debt. The United States, is following Greenspan, says we are never going to redeem our debt. You can hold your money here, but uh, just like a Ponzi scheme uh, and just like Silicon Valley Day, uh, Bank, uh, you, you can all... Think of this dollar holding as being worth something until you actually try to sell it. You try to sell it, then you're going to find out that it's all the savings that you've accumulated since 1945, since World War II ended 75 years ago. Uh, all of this is, is uh, fictitious capital. And uh, <laughs> you, you're just uh, waking up to the fact of uh, reality economics. So uh, this is uh, what is basically uh, uh, other countries are finally realizing this. And uh, by uh, splitting the world financially, uh, you're, this is the, the lever, like uh, cutting a diamond. This is, this, is, this is the key split that is uh, basically splitting uh, the whole world economy uh, on financial terms. And this is the one topic that uh, you cannot discuss in the major media here, and you cannot even raise in economics courses uh, in the United States, uh, because the answer is so terrifying to uh, uh, advocates of U.S. hegemony. I, you know, I, I wonder... Um... I wonder about the speech that uh, Sullivan gave the other day. No, when, when he said, you know, globalization, privatization, deregulation, trade liberalization had failed, you know, he said, because a non-market economy, <laughs> namely China, of course, a non-market economy, was part of the uh, international order. You know, he said... Uh, he said the idea that markets lead growth is, is wrong. He said there was an overemphasis upon finance. He said that the real, real industry, real sector was hollowed out. He said that there was a decline in public investment. He said that the policy of spend first failed. He said that trickle down failed. And he spoke about, you know, some process through which the erosion of the working class eroded the middle class. And then, of course, he advocates um, blockading China. But the, it, in a sense, represents, you know, a quite considerable sort of reversal, you know, within the United States. And, you know, I, I wonder how Radhika and Michael, you know, see, see this speech, you know. And I mean, it's also, of course, important to ask, you know, just how much... <laughs> support it actually has, you know, amongst uh, elites in the United States and the political class? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a very important question. And I've argued in my uh, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, a Geopolitical Economy, um, uh, which came out just at the end of last year, because this sort of talk was already beginning to happen at the time I was writing it. And so I've dealt with this matter. So here's my position. Essentially, uh, obviously, the the uh, the mounting uh, contradictions of neoliberalism inevitably mean that people will be talking about you know what's wrong with it and so on and and certainly this talk is is going on. So there are two possibilities. Number one, of course, the just because uh, you know as I said new. Just because neoliberalism is failing doesn't mean that they're going to give it up because neoliberalism has never been about markets. It has always been about favoring the corporate capitalist classes. And uh, the, the nature of the U.S. state is not going to change overnight. So what's going to happen is that uh, the first option is that people will say these sorts of things. We have to do finance differently. You know, Mariana Matsukato says we have to do capitalism differently. So they will find a way of doing corporate capitalism differently. Uh, they will. Uh, and so they will say, you know, we have to do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that or even a lot more of this and a lot more less of that. But in reality, the underlying structure will not change. The corporate capital will continue to be favored in a different way, in new forms, because the old forms no longer work. 
the old forms have led to financial crises and, and, and blah, blah, and so on. So that's the first option. But there is also, thanks to the very divisions that have been created, the political divisions that have been created by neoliberalism, there is also another option, which is that some, someone like Trump, Trump himself might come back to power. And then we are going to see a much more authoritarian version, a much more, I mean, this other version is, uh, option number one is dystopian enough, but an even more dystopian option will be seen. So I think those are the two options. I don't, I mean, unless there is some kind of a radical revolution, you are not going to displace the corporate capital that has the reins of the U.S. state in its hands. And that drives that. So I think that corporate capital is either going to drive the U.S. state to destruction or it may be replaced by something even worse. So that's what I think. But Michael, you're back and please, um, you also say, respond to my mixed question. Um, I, I'm in agreement with uh, what both of you said. It's a, uh, it's a uh, neoliberalism really has, uh, and trickle-down theory has been amazingly successful in polarizing the economy. The, United, the aim of the 1% is to have all of the economic surplus leaving nothing for the rest. Just And the aim of neoliberal foreign policy is to get the whole world surplus uh, in, uh, in, in one country <laughs> and leave nothing for the rest. That's the implicit dynamic. Uh, the, the trick and what makes uh, academic uh, economics uh, fictitious economics and more like science fiction than like science is uh, the pretense that somehow benefiting the 1% benefits the 99%. Unless you realize that uh, rent income, uh, monopoly rent, land rent, natural resource rent uh, is uh, a transfer payment uh, that uh, has nothing to do with earned income. Uh, we're, we're back to the classical economics of Adam Smith, uh, Ricardo, uh, John Stuart Mill and Marx, uh, uh, that, uh, then you're not going to realize that what seems to be a growing economy is an economy that's shrinking uh, as a result of all of the economic surplus being sucked upward, not by profits, but by uh, rent seeking, by monopoly rents, by, by exploitation of almost a pre-capitalist uh, form. So we're dealing with the fact that uh, you don't have the kind of industrial capitalism in America or Europe that uh, you had in the 19th century. You have a regression to a kind of neo-feudal rentier economy of inherited privilege uh, and oligarchy, uh, not democracy. And we've been that we've talked enough about that in earlier programs. That all we have to do is uh, remind the readers that this is the context for uh, what we're talking about with uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia and the U.S. and China and the rest of the world uh, today. No, and, and you know, so 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 to sum up on this question, I forgot to add one other thing, which is that, of course, as we've already talked about before in the in the last episode. There is increasing talk about industrial policy on both sides of the Atlantic. But given the neoliberal orientation of these governments, uh, uh, that is to say the corporate orientation of these governments, essentially what will be called the label industrial policy will be stuck onto a new raft of uh, uh, programs and, and policies through which you are, uh, states are going to provide support to big corporations, including massive subsidies. But I, I also, before we go on to talk about China, I also wanted to make a couple of other points about the United States in the context of this war. And one is that, you know, you always read these um, uh, statistics about the astronomical sums that the United States spends on its military. You know, it's more than the next X number of states combined, etc., etc. And all of these things are true. But what's remarkable is that after all this spending, what has the United States got to show for it? It's got to show for it a series of military failures. Korea, Vietnam, all the 21st century wars, you name it. And I think that the war in Ukraine, despite, uh, which is, of course, a proxy war, the United States is not fighting it itself, because quite frankly, I don't think the American public has stomach to fight wars anymore. And this is going to be a major issue in the election. But nevertheless, the, even the United States is also going to face defeat in this war. So that, you know, this whole, uh, the, the, the whole optics are being managed around this so-called spring offensive uh, in such a way that the United States can 
at some point say, okay, we've done all we can. The Ukrainians have done all we can, but this war cannot be won. And they will shift their attention to elsewhere, especially given that an election campaign is coming and the um, and Biden is not very popular and nor is the war very popular. More and more Americans are asking, why are we spending all this money on wars when we have so much need at home, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, uh, uh, that, that's really an, uh, an important thing to watch for is how the war will play out in this campaign. I can't add anything to that. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't, you know, sort of jumping onto the right. next one. So, so I think we've. Uh, Mick, did you want to add anything about the U.S. before we go on to China? No, that's fine. Thank you. Okay, so then uh, why don't we? Uh, why don't actually I ask Mick? You are our resident China expert, so why don't you start us off on China? Okay, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just say something more generally about China first of all. Um, I mean, the first thing, the first thing I would say is that, you know, in 2017, China entered a new era. And you know, that era was actually foreshadowed by what started to happen around the turn of the millennium. So China is in a sense embarked on a new phase in its development and its transition, if you like, to, to socialism. So th this new phase follows two very broad earlier ones. It follows a turbulent phase of socialist construction after 1949, which occurred in the context of United States embargoes, in the context subsequently of a conflict with the Soviet Union, and in a context of acute capital shortage and of course, you know, as a country that came from behind, you know, China had to address its capital shortage, not in the way in which the imperial and colonial countries had done so, basically by appropriating resources from other parts of the world, but it had to generate those resources internally or initially, of course, with the help of, of Soviet loans and, and Soviet industrial assistance. And then, you know, after the rapprochement with the United States, you know, which of course occurred in order to increasingly isolate the Soviet Union, China embarked on a path that actually it planned before 1949, but it was unable to follow that path simply, you know, because of the way in which it was isolated by the actions of the United States and the, and the Western world. So it entered on a, on a path, you know, called it reform and opening up. And that occurred in a context of neoliberal globalization its roots in China lay in the early 1970s. You know, as soon as the embargo started to be lifted, you know, Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, started to acquire loans abroad in order to finance you know, industries producing consumer goods along in coastal areas. But I mean, that then led to this phase of reform and opening up in which China managed right, its, its integration into, into the global order generating these extraordinary, extraordinary rates of growth. But I mean, the thing that I would em emphasize, first of all, is that it was driven, you know, by sustained high rates of capital accumulation right the way through. Of course, it fluctuated a lot in the first 30 years, but you had sustained high rates of capital formation. I, I would say you could, should describe China as a sort of plan rational, a plan rational socialist state, which uses after reform and opening up market instruments. A planned rational state because it basically sets social and economic objectives that are essentially designed to progressively improve the living standards of all the Chinese people. And then, you know, it acts in order to achieve these goals that it's set itself. I think that um, it's important to say that Throughout this set of phases, you, what, what you see are a whole succession of successive waves of reform and transformation of economic structures and of institutions. And all of these changes are basically designed to address crises and contradictions that emerge in the course of its development. 
And what was interesting is that in a sense, an attempt to avoid the dynastic cycle, you know, the rise and fall in dynasties. In other words, you address the contradictions at each stage through processes of reform, which enable you to move forward progressively on a path whose end point, you know, is, is socialism, communism. But that lies a very, very long way into, into the future. Um, the important thing about, about this new era, as far as China's concerned, is that basically it's mapping out a new development path, and it's a development path that will differ very significantly from the Western path, it explicitly argues that this path differs from that that has been pursued by the West. It's a path that is people-centered and not capital-centered. That's one profound difference between a socialist country and a capitalist country. In a sense, politics, right, including China's whole process democracy is in a sense in command and sets the objectives and targets. And it's basically directed at improving the quality of lives of all the Chinese people. But one way of trying to capture it is to say that there's a whole series of new concepts that are being talked about. So this kind of notion of uh, dual circulation, in which the domestic and overseas sectors reinforce each other, but where the domestic market is the sort of mainstay of economic growth. The emphasis, I mean, really since 2013 has been on high quality development rather than on rapid growth. On scientific and technological innovation, technological upgrading, right, developing the technologies of the next industrial revolution and then trying to ensure that those technologies diffuse rapidly into order to improve the livelihoods of people. It's sustainable green development. I mean, anyone who anyone who lives in China will have seen already extraordinary improvements in, in the quality of the environment. Really, really quite remarkable. So the idea is green, green development, rural revitalization, a world in which, you know, perhaps a relatively large share of the population continues to live and work in the countryside. It involves spiritual civilization, which is a response to you know, the uh, consequences of uh, liberalization, of consumerism, of selfishness. You know, so, I mean, this is quite interesting, you know, because um, Wang Huning, who's one of the current leadership, you know, wrote a book after he visited America in the 1980s called uh, America Against America, in which he actually identified the way in which trends in American society were leaving in the direction of uh, isolation, fragmentation, disintegration. And in a sense, this concern with spiritual civilization is really concerned to guarantee and ensure sort of social cohesion. It involves concern with strategic security and stability and most and very importantly common prosperity. So this notion of common prosperity is in a sense one of the key drivers of Chinese development. So, it, so in a sense it's mapping out a kind of development trajectory that differs very, very radically, you know, from the, the development trajectory of um, countries that embarked on, on neoliberal paths. And then, I mean, we can talk more about that when we talk about the world, but at the same time, it's trying to contribute to the emergence of a new of a new world order. You know, René Mignon, Contenti, you know, uh, uh, global um, civilization, you know, shared prosperity in the world. So I think, you know, what is important to me is that it, it, it's setting out a kind of model, you know, for the creation of a rather different kind of world as well as for a different kind of China. And when you look at all the problems in other countries, you know, it's in a sense a very positive vision, but it reflects this capacity to set social and economic goals. Yeah, and this is such an, I'm very glad you started it off this way, because what you've done is you've sort of laid the foundation for a picture uh, that is that is becoming increasingly clear in which, of course, for the West and for, for well, obviously, for obvious reasons for Ukraine, this is a huge and deep crisis. But the fact of the matter is, as far as China is concerned, for the war conflict over Ukraine is really a, a small part of a much larger picture, which is largely composed of its peaceful rise. Uh, of its uh, anti-imperialism, and I, I think you, uh, you are. I also like to uh, emphasize something that you said and slightly elaborate on it. You said, you know, China had to overcome its um, uh, its 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 lack of capital, etc., thanks to imperialism. So I would say, you know, in order to understand the development of China and also understand what every third world country faces today, you have to understand that the development process in these countries will have to be very different from the West. Why? Because number 
number one, Western development itself set them back in the first place, thanks to imperialism, colonialism, etc., etc., so that they had to start from a much worse place to begin with. Number two, they have to complete the process. They have to undertake and uh, the process of development without having the luxury of imperialism i think you as you rightly said mm. Nick, that you 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 cannot source your capital from elsewhere you cannot plunder india in order to finance the industrialization of europe and the united states and the settler colonies and so on you can't do that so you have to generate your own capital in order to do that and you have to generate all your resources to do that and number three you have to do it against the unremitting resistance of the imperialist powers. In all of these ways, the development of China is very, very different, and it is bound to be very different. And 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 we, I, I'll, I'll come back to that when we when we come back to the uh, to to, to um, uh, talking about the rest of the world as well. But but for the rest, I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, I think that you know the West really dreams that it's going to be able to drive a wedge between China and Russia. But I think China understands. Uh, no matter what criticisms it may have of Russia's actions privately, but China understands that this uh, uh, that, 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 that the Western aggression is primarily responsible for this war. And there is absolutely no way that giving into it is going to benefit anybody. So this is the real source of China's support for Russia. It's not being partial to Russia. It just understands things in a much bigger way. So China can be expected to continue supporting Russia. And of course, the fact that it now has a, 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 a cheap source of energy is not going to go amiss at all. But I think between them, I think China is, of course, in the lead. But they are pioneering a new world order, which is essentially about an, a, a model of development which is absolutely the opposite of neoliberalism. Um, so, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll just say that for now and leave it there because I'm sure Michael has lots to say as well. Well, what's unique uh, about what China is doing uh, internationally is there's it's made no attempt at all to proselytize uh, its economic system. What is its economic model, uh, since you use that term? It, it hasn't uh, said it. It doesn't say, here is our, <clears throat> we have an economic model that's an alternative to neoliberalism. Here is how we are uh, redesigning our national income accounts uh, to show what we're doing. <clears throat> As Soviet Russia had a different set of national income accounts. <clears throat> it's not really explaining a different economic doctrine to uh, what is taught in the United States schools. And in fact, uh, Chinese students are sent to the United States to study economics. Uh, uh, and even once they return to China, I'm told they're given priority over uh, uh, Chinese students. And there really uh, isn't any uh, economic teaching of a model even within China. And a few weeks ago, uh, President Xi's uh, speech on <clears throat> at the party Congress uh, talked all about what the overall aims were, world peace, a growing economy, uh, the aims that uh, Nick has mentioned, but there was no uh, analytic content of how are we going to get there? What is our tax policy going to be? How are we going to finance the uh, local uh, uh, government budgets that are now uh, financed by selling off land uh, to real estate developers? How are we going to uh, handle our land issue, the financial issue? Uh, what are the virtues of uh, what we've done is keeping money uh, as a public utility uh, in the hands of government, not privatizing it, not turning money into a financial commodity. Uh, how do we avoid turning land into a uh, financial commodity? How do we avoid turning labor into uh, a commodity but treat the objective as raising labor? There's been no kind of economic model to teach uh, uh, an alternative. And in fact, uh, there's very little discussion in China of the history of economic thought uh, apart from uh, Marx. So I don't think that uh, if we're talking about where is all this going to end, I don't think there can be a multilateral order without uh, some kind of a, uh, uh, a explicit uh, economic doctrine that finds its counterpart in a mirroring set of institutions uh, built along socialist lines as alternative to the uh, World Bank, to the International Monetary Fund. We've mentioned the International Criminal Court. Uh, we've mentioned uh, basically a whole 
different uh, United Nations with uh, uh, what what are uh, economic rights of countries? What are the uh, the kind of growth that we want to do? Uh, this is what's basic. Uh, I won't talk about China's foreign policy yet. I'll I'll, I'll throw it back uh, uh, to you guys, but uh, it, it's unique that China hasn't spilled out uh, what it's going to do. The only thing that we have that China might say is, well, uh, how are we going to respond to the sanctions? It's said that uh, if uh, 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 Ms. Baerbach's uh, uh, projected sanctions on Chinese trade are imposed, there will be retaliation, but it hasn't said anything about how it's going to retaliate and what are the principles of uh, retaliation against the America's economic war against China. For instance, uh, it could impose sanctions on European countries that are importing US products that could be used for the war of Ukraine. Suppose that China were to mirror uh, the US sanctions policy, uh, starting with tanks and missiles or oil and gas, uh, food. Uh, imagine if China and Russia backed by the global majority, uh, somehow could uh, mirror American sanctions and say, okay, you're not going to uh, uh, trade with us for, uh, except for key things that you want. We're not going to trade for, with you. We're going to go it alone. Well, if China, Russia, and the global majority go it alone, which is where we're moving towards, what are the, the principles going to be to create economic institutions uh, like their own trade organization, their own uh, uh, central bank, uh, to finance all this. There's been no uh, discussion of this and not even a proselytizing of economic ideology that ultimately is the framework for all of this alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, Mick, perhaps you want to come back? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think I would just emphasize this, I, this idea that, you know, certain, certain goals are set. I mean, for example, you know, they might set a goal concerned with rural regeneration. So that, that you know that that means that certain resources are mobilized. You know, it, it's an attempt, if you like, to to, to mobilize the human, financial, and material resources of particular localities in order to generate income streams that improves, you know, the the the, the living standards, quality of life in different different places. Some of these things you know, generate certain certain vulnerabilities. You know, so I mean. You know, you you can illustrate it by looking at partic what what particular things that happened in in particular places. You know, so you know, I mean, a particular locality, you know, uh, with a traditional culture, you know, had resources to rebuild, you know, from government, you know, to rebuild people's homes, adding on guest rooms, and then this village then becomes a place which is used for sort of seminars and workshops, and so it generates an income stream through acting as a kind of a centre for. Um, Visitors, you know? and in, in that context, you see quite significant increases in local income. So it, it's 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 mobilising the kind of the environment. It's mobilising the infrastructural assets that have been put in in order to 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 enable people to establish sustainable livelihoods. Now, in some cases, it confronts difficulties. You know, because I mean, for example, in the pandemic, you know, it had enormous negative impact upon travel of all kinds, and so negatively impacted the incomes of people who are involved in that kind of project. But you see these things going on at a grassroots level all over China. And then in relation to, you know, the industrial issues, you know, we're talking, talking about sort of restrictions on semiconductors. So, of course, China is launching a whole series of major industrial policies that are basically designed to develop these capabilities, to ensure that China is able to develop these capabilities and does not find itself in a situation again, you know, where it cannot acquire what it needs because someone refuses to sell it to them. So I, I see it as, um, you know, I don't see it through sort of economic theory, you know, I see it through, you know, an, an attempt to achieve certain kind of targets and then, you know, developing projects, you know, mobilizing resources for those projects and then evaluating how they work. And if they work well in one place, you might copy those ideas in other places. It, 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 it's a kind of, it, it works, in, you know, in a very different way, you know, from many of the things that you actually see see in the Western world. And I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, one would easily theorize it. I mean, if I were to talk about the whole of China's experience, you know, I, I'd probably not do it in terms of, oh, there was a transition to a market economy. You know, I, I mean, actually, I think what happened there was that you saw a, a very significant decentralization of initiative in a, in a situation in which the central government lacked resources, you know, for a whole series of reasons, in part because it had to repay debts. So it decided, you know, to let... Uh, 
local initiative, you know. Uh, Do what it wants. Yeah. In a way, you know, which is what happened, you know, with the household responsibility system or with the establishment of, of township and village enterprises and so on. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, what you say, Mick, is very interesting. I mean, this is a, I never thought we would sort of end up discussing this, but this is very interesting. So let me say two things very quickly. Number one, I think, Mick, you're absolutely right. I think what the Chinese have, have done right from the beginning is that they have actually been uh, uh, essentially, like you say, you know, how do you, uh, 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 how do you prevent this cycle of the rise and fall of dynasties? Yeah. How does the party remain in power? It remains in power by addressing concrete problems as they emerge concretely with local resource, whatever resources that may be available at that time. So in that sense, there is not a model to be proselytized about, uh, etc. And China has also uh, been extremely careful internationally, partly because of because it wishes to distance itself to, on this matter anyway from the Soviet experience. And it says we are not exporting any model. There is no Chinese model, etc. And I think that there is some, and and also there's there's a, there's a point to that. But there is another side to it, which is if you think about it, what is the purpose of neoclassical economics? What is the purpose of all this economic theory? It is the the purpose of the dominant trend of in economics is actually to get countries to open themselves up to the West. Mm -hmm. The purpose of economic theory is actually imperialism. So in that sense, of course. China is not going to produce any direct, uh, you know, a counterpart to that because China does not intend to be imperialist. And I would say that, you know, um, a, a lot of people also point out that the abstractness of the theories of neoclassical economics uh, should are contrasted with the concreteness of the theories, such as that of the developmental state, which is different in different parts of the world, which have been very concretely based on the particular situation and the resources etc at hand you know whether it's a developmental state in japan or south korea or or, or elsewhere so in that sense i don't think that there is going to be a, a model but and having said that i think that you know uh, 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 yeah, I, I mean, the thing is that um, the critique of neoclassical economics and the critique of the Western model and the, of Western imperialism is certainly sharpening in China as we speak, I, I, I think. Well, there may not be a model, but there should be economic concepts. And uh, the, to me, the main concept is economic rent, the distinction between earned and unearned income. Mm. Uh, and there has to be a model uh, of international payments. How uh, It's obvious, as we've spoken about before, that some countries are going to end up with uh, uh, claims on other countries. China, uh, how will China uh, be remunerated for the expense of its Belt, belt and Road uh, initiative? How will all this be settled? There has to be some kind of uh, accounting system uh, for all of this. And an accounting system is basically uses economic categories. And uh, so uh, and we don't need a whole model of the economy, but we do need some basic concepts uh, that are the building blocks of uh, China's pragmatic uh, experimentation that, is, uh, that it's following. Um, yeah, you know, I think. Yes, go ahead. I mean, I, yeah, I was. I mean, you know, there are there are economic concepts that you can use. I mean, in relation to this idea of common prosperity, you know, they talk about the role of the primary, the secondary, and the tertiary distribution of income. And the idea is that in a socialist country, everyone, you know, should contribute, everyone should work. So this kind of primary distribution of income, the income that you derive from the work that you do, plays a very, very fun fundamental role. But of course, present, there's a lot of development of a whole series of, of services, which obviously are financed, you know, in part through contributions, but in part also through through taxation, through in terms of health, education, and so on. And, and then you've also got mechanisms, these me so-called tertiary distribution, that's what they call situation where, for example, um, companies right, uh, undertake socially useful initiatives in other parts of China, or where you have cooperation you know, between uh, local governments in one part of China, which is, are expected to actually mount projects in other parts of China. And if you like, places that have become relatively rich help those places that have not become relatively rich. So those concepts are used, you know, and I mean, you know, I mean, you were talking about the international side. I mean, in terms of the international side, obviously, you know, 
you know, they have balance of payments accounts, you know, so they examine the balance of payments. I mean, when they built Belt and Road projects involve investment finance and that involves, you know, interest, it involves repayment arrangements and so on, um, usually on terms that are less uh, onerous, right, than those of, of international, you know, of the, of the multinational, of the multilateral banks and also of um, Western Western financial um uh, sources but um you know when they opened up you know i mean they operate they managed their, their capital count you know was not opened you know so i mean these these categories do play a role and the non-opening of the capital count had a very great deal to do with china's development path because it actually had impacts on the exchange rate and therefore on the competitiveness of chinese exports so i think you, you yeah you you can use economic concepts you know to discuss some of these things but i, I don't think there's a kind of um you know, I mean, there's nothing equivalent, you know, to the kind of neoclassical theory of markets, you know, that you can apply to the Chinese case. And I don't, I don't think, you know, um, I mean, I know that it's taught in China as well as in the United States, you know, but, and, and in Europe, but I tend to see things much more in a kind of more practical way, you know, of uh, moving, moving things forward, you know, in terms of moving up the value chain, you know, improving people's livelihoods, you know, improving the quality of the environment, improving air quality, um, all sorts of things of that kind, you know, they're very, very concrete, you know, many things are trying to achieve are very, very concrete. No, that's, I mean, and, and in a certain sense, that makes sense, because after all, what is socialism? It's use value production. It's not, yeah. use values are very concrete. They are not abstract, uh, as value is, or what, what's often called exchange value is i just call it value but anyway maybe we should uh, we've, we've been going for nearly uh, a little over 50 minutes now and so i think we should transition to our last topic which is uh you know what's going on in the rest of the world and i have to say you know compared with just to kick us off on this compared with um you know the optimism that existed in the much of the 2010s with talk about rising multipolarity and rising bricks and so on the rest of the world is not doing as well as china and i think that uh, at the same time i think that one another thing is very clear is that the, if the rest of the world wants to do better uh, say, for example, President Lula in Brazil, then he is going to have to implement policies that are that make a clean break with the Washington consensus with neoliberalism and uh, at least learn from China, if not exactly, you know, there is no model, there's no Chinese model, but sort of learn about how the Chinese essentially create a development in their context and take tips uh, uh, for that, because essentially the rest of the world is actually in uh, suffering from uh, obviously high prices that is facing many parts countries are facing a debt crisis there is increasing uh, 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 there's also a lot of political uncertainty in many parts of the world uh, 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 thanks to uh, uh, thanks to the uh, current war, the current you know the, the, the destabilization of existing arrangements. but I think underlying all this is the decline of the West whose chief cause is neoliberalism. And I think if the rest of the world is to learn anything from there, is to, is to climb out in, uh, of, of, of the crisis, it's in, in, in so many parts of it, and, and, and build a, a, a better economic model, etc., it will have to be in some kind of anti-neoliberal kind of socialist or quasi-socialist manner. And here, I have to say that one, you know, I'm, uh, I'm originally from India, I study India, and I have to say for the last uh, several years, things have looked very depressing with the present government uh, in power, which is really a, a fascist government in power. Uh, 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 making nonsense of the rule of law, allowing its goons to uh, uh, to, to 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 prosecute whoever it likes, and abs making an absolute mess of the economy. Indian economic growth has been actually uh, uh, extremely weak, even though the government has cooked up statistics to show that it is somehow good. But just a day or two ago, there was a really bright light in, in this uh, rather dim scenario. And that was that in the Indian state of Karnataka, there was an election which the Congress won. And it won the election by promising a people-centered set of policies.
policies. And I think if the if if the Congress and other opposition parties can understand what this means and stick to it, I think that it will be able to bring India out of this mess. Of course, in Brazil, we have President Lula, but South Africa is also uh, not in a very good state. It is in a state of perpetual uh, economic crisis. But I think in the context of the decline of the West, the 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 the, the awful consequences of the neoliberal model and the rise of China, I think that the world should be able to learn from from what from, from this contrasting fate of the West and China. Well, what's blocking the uh, uh, the uh, rest of the world from moving away from uh, neoliberalism? Uh, Lula last week uh, uh, asked uh, how uh, proposed that China that uh, Argentina and Brazil should have a common currency. Uh, well, how can you have an alternative to the dollar or a common currency uh, when you have uh, an immense dollar debt? What's blocking other countries right now from creating a, an alternative that is uh, uh, more a uh, mixed economy with a uh, public sector uh, dominant and ending rentiers is the fact that uh, this dollar debt is forcing these countries to uh, submit to the International Monetary Fund, mm -hmm. which is uh, the neoliberal uh, uh, hammer, uh, forcing uh, privatization, forcing anti-labor policies, is uh, all the things that uh, we've described before. Uh, and the, the only way that other countries can uh, pursue an alternative to uh, the trap that they're in, the only way they can escape from this trap is to repudiate the dollar debt and say, well, look, we've, uh, we, uh, we've been led into uh, a trap that uh, is uh, financially killed as many people as a military occupation. Just like President Putin had said that more uh, Russians died as a result of the privatizations and the neoliberal policies of the 1990s than died in World War II, you can say that the third world uh, uh, finance is uh, how the uh, neoliberals are locking other countries into uh, the U.S.-centered uh, uh, diplomacy. And uh, without the only way that countries can uh, break from this U.S.-centered uh, diplomacy and uh, the sanctions uh, and the uh, U.S. Uh, control of uh, uh, the world uh, coordinating organizations is to create a new set of coordinating organizations, which uh, requires really uh, creating, uh, withdrawing ultimately from what you call Western civilization. And I, I agree with you. Uh, it's a civilizational problem. It's, it's so this is the basic uh, uh, fight for what will the next millennium uh, look like. And uh, uh, it, it, it can't be done without an explicit break. Uh, there was a Chinese proverb, uh, uh, whoever tries to go two roads at once will get a broken hip joint. Uh, well, that's uh, the problem that uh, that they face. Uh, uh, you, you can uh, go beyond uh, just uh, the U.S. and China and say, uh, what about Syria uh, and the U.S. presence in the Near East right now uh, that uh, the U.S. is holding? Uh, it's been told uh, uh, to leave Iraq, and it hasn't left Iraq. The U.S. military presence over the rest of the world is doing everything it can to prevent other countries from following the alternative. And it's, in fact, uh, militarized uh, uh, neoliberalism. Uh, that's really uh, the problem that we, uh, uh, we have uh, uh, today. And uh, uh, Mr. Blinken said just last week that there is a kind of uh, just and durable peace but it can't uh, ratify what Russia has done, that America will fight not only against Russia and China until everything, all of the Russian uh, uh, assimilations of uh, uh, Crimea, of Luhansk and uh, Donetsk uh, are all reversed and things go back to the way they were before. That's the neoliberal dream, going back to the way it was before to prevent any change going forward. That really is uh, uh, the, the final statement of neoliberalism. There cannot be no uh, escape. There is no alternative. There cannot be any escape from uh, uh, the dollar diplomacy and the, uh, the uh, world institutions that we control. That's what the rest of the world is faced with. Um. Can Paul show a slide? Just uh, I think um, I want I want to just to present a more you know positive 
view about some of the things that I, I mean, I realize, you know, I agree absolutely. I mean, debt is uh, a problem, you know, especially ever since, you know, the 1980s, especially, you know, I mean, it's a trap, you know, which many countries have simply not managed to escape. And uh, it's a trap that's extremely difficult to escape. Um, but, you know, this is a this is simply a chart that looks at the share of world output of agricultural products, of manufacturing goods, of um, energy, raw materials, and then it also gives a share of GDP and the share of the population. So the, the share of the um, uh, GDP is in black. So you can see that's relatively low, but th these are the so-called BRI countries. And you can see that they account for 0.6, well, 60% of the world population. But if you look at their contribution to the world production of um, energy, you know, of the kind of materials, raw materials that are needed, if you look at their contribution to the production of manufacturers, if you look at their contribution to the production of food, you see a sustained increase. If you look at the BRICS, you get a similar story. If you look at the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you get a similar story. If you look at RESEP, you see a similar story. So, you know, there are deep difficulties, you know, I mean, not least, you know, because of the, the, the conflict in Ukraine, but also because of the deepening debt crisis, because of the impact of the conflict on, in Ukraine on the availability of energy, on the availability of food, you know, especially, of course, in emerging countries. So there are serious, serious difficulties. And yet, you know, some parts of the world are making progress. And I mean, that, that should be a message of, of hope, you know, beyond, you know, the uh, neoliberal order dominated by the uh, collective West, you know, the part of parts of the world that colonized the rest of the world largely, you know, after a series of Chinese inventions, you know, like watertight compartments and ships, gunpowders, magnetic compass, you know, the ability to printing, you know, they arrive in Europe and Europe uses those Chinese inventions, you know, to put guns on ships and dominate the world. But, you know, I think, you know, there is also a vision of a different type of world system, you know, centered around a series of civilization states. And, and, you know, while there are enormous challenges, you know, I think if you look at what's going on in the world, you can see, you know, stories that offer a certain amount of hope. And, uh, you know, many of these are associated with what, what is happening in Asia and Russia is sort of orientating itself towards Asia and will also make an enormous contribution, you know, to the, to, to the development of what will hopefully, you know, beyond these disasters, you know, through which we're living, what will hopefully look start to look like a better world. So I think we need this kind of positive, you know, vision of, of, of a way forward, you know, as, as well as, you know, identifying the problems of crises, you know, that we, we confront. And that's one of the reasons why I spoke about China in the way, you know, because it's an attempt, you know, to move in the direction of collective prosperity, in other words, because it's only a mid, it's only an upper middle income country, you know, at the moment. I mean, maybe the largest economy in the world, but it's a middle income country. And uh, so there's a long way to go, you know, in improving the livelihoods and of, the, of, of Chinese people, and indeed, of course, of people in other parts of the world. So that, that's one of the things I would want to say. Well, you know, maybe and if, if it's uh, okay with you, we should draw this to a close now because we're kind of uh, nearly done. So mm -hmm. let me just then bring this to a close by saying that, you know, a mixed graph that he just showed also tells us why the neoliberal system and the dollar system have to be rejected because the difference between the value or, uh, you know, the fact that the GDP is very low, but their actual production is very high is very simple. The dollar system relies on systematically undervaluing the currencies and therefore the labor and the products of the rest of the world, which is why you see this discrepancy between, you know, how much is produced and what the GDP is. So I, I and I think that that also further. So as far as the rest of the world is concerned, what we are saying is that the road for the rest of the world is very clear. It is away from the West, towards China, Asia, away from the Washington consensus, towards 
whatever locally adaptable forms of socialism is possible, that's the way in which things have to go. And one of the things uh, that the neoliberal West has also done, by the way, is which is going to affect the rest of the world very badly, and the rest of the world needs to take an initiative to deal with it, is that, of course, in the, in the present context, the war has become an excuse to essentially abandon all efforts to reach any climate goals. And again, China is a is an example of how to uh, uh, how to deal with uh, with emissions and generally ecological issues. So, um, you know, meanwhile, uh, the, the global warming is reaching a point where it is seriously affecting labor as well as agricultural productivity in many parts of the world. So the urgency of moving away from the West and from Western neoliberalism and Western imperialism has never been greater. So I think with that, I just like to uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks to Mick Dunford for joining us on this amazing show, which makes contribution made uh, uh, so excellent, I think. And of course, thanks as usual to, uh, uh, to Paul Graham, our videographer. Uh, so thank you again and see you next time. Bye-bye.